And he pushed back a little bit on some of the tradition that said, let's move into the text and treat it like something to simply be dissected. He said that's important, kind of Bible study, pulling everything apart. But his concern was that sometimes in the process of doing that, we lose the narrative sweep of what the text is trying to show us, and we lose some of the um, beautiful artistic imaginative moments that are actually there in the text, but we either move through them too quickly or we're not engaging our imaginations as we move through the text. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to have three people read Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. If you have a Bible in front of you, I'd encourage you to open it up. Find it, Mark 5, verses 21 to 43. It'll also be on the overhead. And what we're going to do is we're going to read that in sequence three times. It's one of my favorite... um, It gives kind of one story. Sometimes in the Bible it breaks it up, but I I think it's kind of one story. And there's a few different ways you can do this. You can simply just listen to it three times. It's going to be three different people reading, which will bring its own little flavor out. But what St. Irenaeus encouraged people to do is especially in uh, texts that focus on Jesus encountering people, is to, as best as you can, put yourself in the place of the actual scene. Um, In the theater of your mind, move into that story and notice things that you didn't notice before in the text because maybe we're used to reading it once through quickly, picking out something, oh, that's helpful, and then we move on. So we're actually going to steep in this text three times. So I'm going to call Judith and Ed and Colin up. They're going to be our readers. And um, yeah, you can come forward. A few different ways you could imagine your way through this reading. The first is, oh, let me, do we have a, where's the little microphone? Justin, is, is the mic back there? Oh, I brought it to my seat with me. So Ed's going to read first, and then Judith, and then Colin. And as they do, you could do a few different things. You could simply just picture, like a movie, the scene playing out in your mind's eye. Or you could put yourself in a person's situation. The first reading through might be hard to do that, but in the subsequent readings, it might be a little bit easier. You might want to put yourself in the shoes of Jairus coming to Jesus and asking Jesus to come and heal your daughter who's dying and keep in that, that perspective and kind of watch. You might want to put yourself in the position of the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and try and imagine the scene from her point of view. Or you might put yourself simply as a member of the crowd or even Peter, one of the disciples who's with Jesus, and watch the scene play out. But we're going to read through it slowly three times as a way to just steep in the text. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll move into the message. God, your word is living and active. And we thank you that you invite us to engage it and to feed on it and to chew it over and to meditate on it through all kinds of different elements of our faculties, including our imaginations. And as we um, read through this text this morning, as we sit in it and just allow it to kind of wash over us three times, Holy Spirit, would you guide us in the truth? Would you make us attentive to nuances in the text that we've missed? Would you soften our hearts so that the, the punch of this story, so that the drama of the story isn't lost on us, that we wouldn't 
move into this as simply an intellectual exercise, but an act of worshiping, seeing Jesus moving and healing. And it's in his strong name that we ask these things. Amen. Okay, Ed. Okay, Mark 5, uh, start with verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the crowd gathering against you, his disciples answered. And yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And and after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said, Talitha, Kawom, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. I can relate to the story. I was uh, diagnosed with endometriosis in 1991. And for anybody who knows about that disease, it is um, very painful. There's a lot of bleeding continually, so you're very tired. Um, and it's, it affects 6 to 10% of women. There is no cure for it. Nobody really knows what brings it on. And um, it was just amazing to see God's hand at work many, many times through those 13 years that I had it. And the, 
this scripture is very um, special to me because of that. Because one day when I was working at Walmart, I was in a lot of pain and I just knew that I needed something extra to get me through the day. As you can appreciate, um, I could have gone home, but I would have been in pain at home and I would have lost my pay for that day. So I might as well stay where I was. So I thought about the story and I thought, Lord, I'm going to hold on to your cloak all day. And that's what I did. And I got through the day. And many years later, God did a miraculous healing in my body. And I have been 12 years healed. And it's been just an amazing, amazing thing. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her daughter, Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat.
when Jesus had come, had crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come put your hands on her and and so she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And there was a woman there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she had grown worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding had stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you? His disciples answered. And yet you can ask, Who touched my clothes? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow them, except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they had come to the house of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they just laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in to where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talith kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this, and he told them to give her something to eat. Thanks, guys. Well, as much as I steeped in this text this week, I had another little epiphany on the third reading. I was like, ooh, I noticed something. Amazing what happens when you don't rush. Let's have some interaction. What did you notice? What stood out to you? What question kind of came to mind? Um, Often if we just sit with a text, there's a word, there's a phrase, there's an encounter where we say, hey, I hadn't noticed that before. Maybe it's not some grand insight. That's totally okay. But in this encounter with Jesus, Jairus and the woman who's bleeding, what do you notice?
synagogue ruler who would be risking everything. He must have been desperate, you know, knowing that his daughter was ill to be able to do that because really you know, he's committing a murder suicide in that sense. <laughs> and, and to know that he would go and he would fall at the feet of Jesus and knowing what his control is, knowing who God is as well. But feeling that, you know, seeing, listening to the people debate on Mm-hmm. Well, we've got this control. You have jobs. We don't want this guy, you know, ruining that. And that yet he would come and fall at his feet in front of a huge crowd. So it wouldn't be, wouldn't be something that would, he didn't kind of try to find him, you know, in a back alley or kind yeah. of his house, but did that completely in public, but believed and seen in Jesus that he would Yeah, that, that's a fantastic insight, Colin, that Jairus is willing as, and this is my epiphany, actually, on the third reading, I didn't realize how often it kept saying, the synagogue ruler, the synagogue ruler, Jairus, the synagogue ruler. It's like Mark wants to remind us, this was a person who was torn between two worlds. One was his Jewish world that said, I'm a synagogue ruler, which would have been kind of like the leader of a local congregation of, of Jewish people. It wouldn't have been like super high up, but he was, um, he was economically, religiously, um, emotionally, spiritually privileged, politically privileged because of his position. And for him to come to Jesus, again, knowing the backstory in Mark thus far, the religious authorities are starting to say, who is this? By what power does he do these things? Is he legitimate? He's kind of making claims to be the Messiah, sometimes more than a Messiah. What, you know, where is someone who has a huge stake in the game like Jarius going to fall in something like this? But Jarius' little girl is dying. And, and the verb they're dying doesn't mean like she's in the process of maybe losing her life. There's a tremendous sense of urgency. She's on death's door. And we realize that in the story. It's not long before another wave of report comes and says she's actually dead. So he's waited a long time, almost to the last minute, because he's like, I don't, what, what's this going to do for my reputation, for my, for my career? And yet I'm in a place of complete desperation. And the only person I know who to go to is Jesus. So yeah, it's a huge risk. It's a, it's a massive, massive risk. And we don't really know the, the fallout of the whole story, but we have to understand that for Jarius to do that, he's, he's saying, I'm willing to lose everything to get my daughter before Jesus or to get Jesus to my daughter. What else do you notice in the text? Dan? Right. So Dan brought up the blood impurity issues. That's Leviticus 15, 19 to 33. Woman's bleeding, according to Mosaic law, would have made the woman's ceremonial unclean, which prevents her from worshiping in the temple and really joining her people in everyday religious activities. So if you've been bleeding for 12 years, a Jewish reader, all the dominoes connect. They don't always connect for us. That means for 12 years, you've lived in tremendous isolation. Uh, you haven't been able to connect with, you know, a women's Bible study. You haven't been able to go to the local synagogue. Uh, bleeding is a, is an, will alienate you and cut you off from being able to participate 
centrally and most importantly from the worship of God at the temple and the worship of your brothers and sisters in the synagogue. Um, but it also would have meant a tremendous amount of social isolation. We're dealing with someone who, again, who's very, very desperate. She spent lots and lots of money on doctors over those years. She's come to ruin. I think it's kind of a comedic twist that in Luke's telling of the story, he doesn't mention that she had spent all her money on doctors and they couldn't help her because Luke was a doctor. So he kind of was like, <laughs> yeah, anyways, we'll just move on. Um, but yeah, this is a woman who doesn't just have a physical illness in the way that we might think of it, about it in terms of, oh, that, that's challenging to move throughout your day. There's just large swaths of your life which are now cut off from you because you have that issue. You're now tremendously isolated. You are, if you think of the comparison which the text does between Jairus and the woman, Jairus, economically advantaged, politically advantaged, religiously advantaged, socially advantaged. This woman, because of her bleeding, we understand she's politically disadvantaged. She's religiously disadvantaged. She's socially disadvantaged. So there's this really extreme case that doesn't seem maybe extreme to us, but to a Jewish person, it's like, this is someone who has everything together, and this is someone who has nothing together, and both of their stories are colliding on Jesus in this really, really awkward way. It's also the reason, you notice in the text, why the woman comes up behind Jesus. She's, she's trying to not be seen by anybody, really. She's trying to figure out a way to get to Jesus, but she knows that if she exposes herself then she risks, maybe not her life, but she risks tremendous fallout from the community for being unclean and yet coming close to just the community in general, yet alone a respected rabbi. What else do you notice in the text? What stands out to you, Judith? Mm-hmm. And remember, not only does he stop and address the concerns of the woman, th- again, think about the, the over our, overarching narrative. This is tremendously urgent. A, an important person with lots of clout, be a, probably a good person, politically speaking, for Jesus to get on the right side of, help his reputation a little bit. My daughter's dying. Jesus says, take me to her. And then there's this interruption. And that's what this is. This is a tremendous interruption. What is Jesus going to do? Um, and we see him acting as if it's not an interruption at all. He, he, no one, his, his reaction to this isn't, can't you see what's going on here? How disrespectful. There, there's a little girl who's dying. We're all over here. We don't have time for this. It's a, it's a different kind of play on the Good Samaritan story, right? Where the, some people step over the person wounded on the road. Oh, in the Lord's business, I'm too busy. I would love to stay and help, but I just can't. You know, this is kind of an allusion, I think, to that. There's certainly echoes there in this story with that. Matt? Mm-hmm. 
And uh, do you notice her reaction? It says, the woman knowing what had happened to her, in verse 33, came and fell at his feet trembling with fear. That's that word again, phobeo. It's not delos, it's not fear, it's phobeo. It's horror. She was terrified. Something amazing has happened. She realized, I'm totally well. I feel instantly strong and healthy. But now this rabbi in this huge crowd is like, who touched me? Who touched me? Something happened to me. who, Who was it? Who was it? Everyone's like, dude, there's people all around you. This is, a, this is chaos here. I, we, we, don't, I don't, we don't know. And he's like, no, he's still looking, he's still looking. And she comes forward, but she's totally petrified. She's scared. Maybe she's scared because she's like, she knew that they were going to this house where this little girl had died, you know, and it's going to bring shame upon her. But what does Jesus say? He says, daughter. Right? That's, a, that's a big word of inclusion. You're a daughter of Israel now. You're a daughter. In a sense, he is telling her who she is now. You haven't been able to. Your bleeding has cut you off. Your uncleanness has cut you off. But now you have, a, you have a whole new identity to live into. Daughter, your faith has healed you. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. She fears wrath, reproach, rebuke from Jesus. And he's like, no, I commend you. This is good. You're a daughter now. Does anyone know? Oh, Rob, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very good. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, that's, again, a great example of something that you could skip over really quickly. But, you know, and again, just pastorally, devotionally, when we go to prayer in God, are we telling God the whole truth? Or are we saying nice things to God? I'm going to pray, I'll say these things, I'm really feeling this, but... mm. Or are we just putting all of our cards on the table and saying, God, this is how I feel about this. I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm frustrated, I'm joyous, I'm, a, I'm anticipatory, uh, you know, all these different things. And it's, I don't even know how, how to make of it, but I'm just telling you where I'm at. Yeah, great reflection. Does anyone know, I, I think it's interesting, you know, she says, she's trying to get to Jesus, but there's something specific. She says, if I could just touch his clothes, then I'd be healed. Does anyone know why she thought that? Like, if you don't know the story, you would just think, I just got to get to Jesus and ask him to heal me. Or you might think, like Jairus did, can you come and lay hands on my daughter and you will save her? Maybe that, but she doesn't think that. She thinks, if I could just touch his clothes, I just need to get close enough to (laughs) kind of do this. I don't need to interrupt anything. I don't need him to lay hands on me. I just need to touch his clothes. Does anyone know where that comes from? It's a, it's a strategic in nature. Like Mark is, that's, that's, is specifically referring to something. In Numbers 15 in the Old Testament, God says, he tells Moses to speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you're to make tassels on the corners of your garments, which is kind of like a prayer shawl. The, 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 we would think of it as an outer cloak uh, with a blue cord on each tassel. And you will have these tassels to look at so that you will remember all the commands of the Lord your God. You can look it up, but you can Google it. They're really interesting. The way they were done, there was like five knots in it to remind them of the first five books of Moses, and it was all kinds of symbolism. They had them on the, on the four corners of their outer, outer cloak so that you're going to remember all the commands of God, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own heart and your own eyes, and then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. You're to make tassels on the corners of your garment. Now, how that ties into this story 
is the Hebrew um, word for corner, kanap, is the same word that's used for the word wing, like the wing of a bird, kanap, which is the same word. Depending on the context, it just flips. And in Malachi 4, when the prophet is speaking and talking about the coming Messiah, it says the coming Messiah will be called the son of righteousness and he will, the son of righteousness will rise and he will have healing in his wings. That's our translation. But that could go either way because in the Hebrew it's just kanap. He will have healing in his corners. So the woman is someone who even though she's isolated, even though she's alienated, even though she's cut off, and there's this tremendous wall of uncleanness between her and the life God has for her, we kind of have textual evidence that she didn't allow that to embitter her heart. She didn't allow that to turn her heart cold. She went deeper into the text and she found these things and she pulled them together and she said, if I believe that Jesus is the Messiah and if I could just touch the, just the hem of his wings, if I could just get to a corner, I will be healed. And that's why when Jesus responds to her. He says, your faith has made you well. That gets misinterpreted as, oh, she had some kind of like psychological confidence. No, that's not what he's saying. He says, your faith was put in the right place. I am the Messiah. You did put your place and because of your faith in me, you've received healing. But Numbers 15 and Malachi 4 kind of come together as this great um, subplot to the story. This was a woman who was deep into the biblical text. And she was waiting for her Messiah to come. And she knew what the text said. I, 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 he doesn't have to lay hands on me. I just need to get to a corner. Maybe one more reflection. Does anyone have anything to share? Max? Right, right, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, the re- I think, the, for me, as I read it, the, the gut punch of the story is uh, verse 35, right? Well, Jesus was still speaking. She, he just healed this woman. Woman, Everything's been kind of brought to a, a standstill. Some men f- came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Now, we know the end of the story, but just for a moment, can you try and imagine what Jer- Jairus is feeling? I sought Jesus out. I put myself on the line. He said he was going to help me, and then he got sidetracked, and now my little girl is dead. That all happens very, very quickly. 
And again, I think devotionally, we're going to have times in our life where we're like, I sought Jesus out. His promises say he's going to help me. Why the delay? Like, if God's good, isn't it going to happen right away? Let's go. My, this, my daughter's dying. My, this opportunity is dying. This door is closing. I don't think I can make it one more day. Why is Jesus delaying? And again, you see, this is a great story to reflect on in those moments to say, you know, Jesus isn't hurried. He's the Lord over all things. So Jesus doesn't have to rush. He doesn't have to operate out of urgency because he can command opportunities and people in situations that have died simply back to life. Everyone around Jairus is like, well, this story doesn't have a happy ending. It's over. Just don't, don't bother Jesus anymore. Max is right. Jesus turns to them and kind of rebukes Jairus and says, don't be afraid, just believe. Then he didn't allow anyone to follow him except for Peter, James, and John. That is something else I never noticed before until I read it for whatever time uh, this week. A lot of Jesus' most dramatic miracles happen in a very small circle of people, which is counterintuitive. You'd think that what Jesus would do is say, hey, get as many people around. I'm going to do something big and spectacular. But I think there's a warning there for us and for... Christians today who would be drawn to a dependence on the big and the miraculous and signs and wonders, Jesus is often trying to contain those things. He doesn't do them. He does. But he wants people to not be dependent on those things for their faith. He wants people to be dependent on trusting in him and following him. The signs and wonders, the miracles will come. But even throughout Jesus' ministry, in some of the most just spectacularly obvious um, death-defying miracles, Jesus says, I'm just taking a few of you with me. Not, not even all the disciples get to see this. They go to Jairus' home. People are laughing at Jesus when they tell him that the girl isn't dead, she's just asleep. And he, Jesus goes to the little girl and he says, Talitha kum. And that's a way that um, it's, hard to tra- it's hard to figure out how to emotionally transliterate that word into English. A lot of commentators will say it's like someone going into a bedroom and trying to wake up a toddler. Like it's like little girl, like a three to four year old little girl. I tell you to get up is one way. The simpler, more direct translation is just arise. It's kind of an allusion to future resurrection. He's reviving her. Little girl, arise. And then get her something to drink. Amazing. Two things to close. Number one, Jesus brings a gospel for the great and the lowly. The first century may have actually been surprised that Jesus took time to address this woman because she was a nobody, had no power, no clout. But we might be surprised in our context to see Jesus taking time to address Jairus. He was religious. He was a God-fearing Jew. He had all kinds of advantages and um, um, politically and socially, and, and, and we often associate Jesus with uh, simply those who are marginalized. You hear that a lot. Jesus was a, a friend and, 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 and cared for the marginalized. That's not true. Jesus loved and cared for any person who was brokenhearted and needed help and needed love. Psalm 34, the Lord is co- close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And both the woman with the bleeding issue and Jairus had to have found it difficult to understand 
why someone like Jesus would willingly defile himself for their sake. Because according to the Old Testament, if someone who's unclean touches you, or if you touch an un- uh, a dead body, you become unclean. But that's not how it works with Jesus. Even today, Jesus continues to touch those who are unclean and give them cleanness. Jesus continues to touch tragedies, opportunities and situations that seem hopeless. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And he brings life out of them. And one day, at the culmination of the ages, when Jesus returns, this story tells us, I believe, how he's going to call us to resurrection life with words that are gentle but are awesome in power. Little girl, little boy, arise. Arise. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your power and your greatness. Would you cause by your Holy Spirit to just have this story rumble around in our heads and hearts this week, God? that we would continue to draw spiritual nourishment from it, teaching, a challenge, God, challenge to our own uh, faith or, or in some cases lack thereof. Use this text in our lives this week, God. Amen. Why don't you stand and we'll forego a final song because we're running a little bit late and we'll send you downstairs with a grace and benediction. And then I also believe at 2 o'clock there's the shower for Noreen, correct? Yeah, so ladies... Your day just keeps going, just keeps going. It's going to be great. So as you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may you reach out for the healing and mercy of Jesus. And as you do, may his grace meet you where you are. And may dead and dying things be brought back to life through his power. May the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. God, we thank you for the food that we are about to receive downstairs as we break bread together, draw us closer to you and closer to each other. Amen. Okay, see you downstairs, guys.